This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. Well, this is certainly our first time having an Olympian on our program, Winter Olympian skeleton athlete, A.J. Edelman. A.J., thank you for joining the show today, and tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up, and what your background was like. I grew up in a modern Orthodox home, a loving Zionistic modern Orthodox home, went to Maimonides School, which is the Jewish State School in Brookline, Massachusetts. It was started by Rav Salvechik about 70 plus years ago. Uh, I played hockey throughout my entire life, fell in love with sports at a very young age. My parents put hockey skates on me at age two and immediately started playing uh, hockey. Were uh, they hockey players themselves? No, they weren't. My dad started skating when we started skating, uh, and he kind of did that to learn with us. And uh, we all kind of grew together. And my older brother, Alex, he's two years older than me. He just had a birthday yesterday, which is Bobby Orr's birthday as well. We just really took to sports, and it took off for us. Were you uh, a good hockey player? I've been told yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what was the highest level that you played? I played at MIT. So I went, I attended MIT at university and uh, I played at MIT. I was offered a number of prep school offers when I was in eighth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, middle middle school, and decided that really this is one of the the more pivotal, like uh, turning points of my life. And I decided at that time that Jews didn't do sports and that it really wasn't in the cards for me or religious Jews didn't do sports. It wasn't in the cards for me to seek out turning pro later on in my life as a viable option. So I decided to remain at school at Maimonides and not take up this prep school offers and kind of given up on a higher level sports career at that point. That was one of the decisions that I had revisited when I decided to strive towards making the Olympic Games later on. Right. So at MIT, um, what position did you play there? Goalie. I had been a goalie for my entire life. I had never understood doing a sport and not wanting to play the entire 60 minutes. So for me, it was, it was simply the only way to go. At MIT, do you like, you know, calculate the angle of the puck and everything? Like, is that what the goalie does? <laughs> Angles are incredibly important. I find that, that I, it seems every athlete that I've ever met attacks the problem of how to succeed in their sport or how to approach the skill in their sport from their own perspective. And myself as a, a trained engineer, mechanical engineer, I was interested in calculating angles for sure. That definitely <laughs> played a part. So it sounds like hockey was the predominant early sport. And did your Judaism present any challenges there? I mean, it sounds like when you're in high school, you're at Maimonides High School, which is a Jewish high school. Were you playing for Maimonides? Were you playing in a, like a rec league, a, a travel league? And, and then when, once you got to MIT, was it difficult to maintain your Jewish identity or your Jewish values during that time? Yeah, so throughout my youth, I played uh, on the Brookline team, which was our town team. And, you know, coming up through the Brookline system, there weren't Jews or religious Jews in the system when Alex and I were playing. I think we were kind of one of the first to show our Shabbos individuals to play in that system. And our teams had always modified schedules to have games that fell Mote Shabbos, not Friday night, um, a lot of Sunday games. And we're very thankful for that. They're very accommodating. Um, when it got to playing at MIT for the first couple of years, they also kind of did that. They took on that role. And, uh, but later on, it became less important for them to do so, I, I, I would, I guess. 
Um, but still, um, playing on Shabbos was never really an option. And, uh, and it did present a problem later on. I mean, it did present a problem for um, the coaches who didn't really uh, understand or agree with it. But that was the level of observance that I decided to keep. And it was important for me to maintain that. How would you deal with coaches that were closed-minded or intransigent? Or how did you approach them? I guess each case is different. You know, dealing with, with different people is always an interesting challenge. But as a Jewish athlete, someone who is proudly um, modern Orthodox, is proudly religious, you know, I found it for myself to be an important task to maintain a positive tone in every interaction that I had. Because you're an ambassador, ultimately, when it comes down to it, wearing a kippah, you're wearing a big neon light over your head. It says, Jew here. <laughs> and so... And so it's really important to deal with, uh, with the issues forcefully, um, not be somebody who's taken advantage of or run over or told that, you know, what they're doing is foreign and incorrect, but also to be respectful so that they come away with the interaction with a positive impression of Jews. Did you find your teammates to be understanding? I imagine, you know, hockey is not the most Jewish of sports. You said, you know, in Brookline, there wasn't a lot of Jewish kids or at least not Jewishly educated, and then I'm sure once you're at MIT, although I know there's a lot of Jews at MIT, I don't know how many of them are on the hockey team. So what, what was their relationship like to you and to your Judaism? I never really found the teammates to be much of an issue. It was usually the coaches who had come from different backgrounds. You know, coaches come from highly diverse sets of backgrounds. At MIT, the students were by and large, I'd say, agnostic. Some of them were religious. Some of them had religion in their lives, but they didn't really care what you did. I've dealt with athletes outside of MIT who have been incredibly, I'd say, varying in their tolerance levels of a Shomer Shabbos or Shomer Mitzvot uh, Jew. But at MIT, I think the joke was always that people were too busy to be political or too busy to have problems with what other people did. You had to really focus on your own issues. They were in the lab the whole time. So. <laughs> yeah. How did you balance that yourself as an athlete at this incredibly rigorous institution, you know, that's known to be such a, a wonkish place? Uh, how did you balance that and athletics? Well, I think the way I did it is a bit of a cautionary tale. I wouldn't approach it the same way uh, the second time. I think a lot of us have those kinds of stories that you wouldn't approach things the same way that you did the first time. I learned my lesson really at the end. I should have realized at first that I went to school to be an academic or to learn what I was trying to learn. But sports has been such an integral part of my life. And especially since I made the decision to, to devote myself really during my year off in Israel was when I made a huge kind of turning point in my life, going from trying to accomplish some larger things. I had only applied to MIT when I got to Israel. It was only after in Israel, after night Seder every night, I'd go and learn for the study for the SAT in physics, the subject of physics, so that I can apply to MIT. And then I was grossly overweight at that point and just decided, you know, I, I had taken stock of my entire life and I thought, you know, well, I have this wonderful, unique gift that Hashem had given me um, to play sports and I had given up on that gift and that gift will definitely go away if I don't use it, if I don't hone that skill level before, before it's gone, I really should make use of it. And that's when I decided, it was from that age 18 really to jump so full on into athletics and sports that it's all I had known for a good deal of months before I got to MIT. And then finally, by the time I'd made the Olympics run in 2014, it's all I'd been doing for four years. So I had sunk so deep into that level 
or into that mentality that I was a focused athlete that I don't think I balanced school incredibly well with it. I got great, you know, I got good grades. I have a good GPA, but there was so much more of MIT that I could have explored. There were societies and clubs and everything. Hockey took at least two hours on ice every day, arriving at the rink an hour before leaving an hour after. So that's four hours of time at the rink. And then I'd go and spend two and a half hours in the gym. So I was spending six and a half hours plus of absolute training every day. And it's really not conducive to being the best that you can be at MIT, I think. So I would caution people against doing the same thing unless you are a dedicated athlete. And in the end, everything works out. It's wonderful that everything always seems to work out in life. Hashem always has a plan for all of us. And so that dedication eventually led to, I guess, the reason that I'm talking to you today. If I hadn't spent that much time honing my craft and the skills, then I would never have gotten to an Olympic level athlete. So I'm not disappointed in how it went. I'm actually quite pleased at how it went. But if I were to look back and say, you know, should I have focused more on academics, it's potential. Potentially, I could have cut down on the hockey time. I don't think your your dilemma and that tension is unusual for an elite athlete at any place, at any institution, certainly not at the higher level in academic institutions. You said you spent a year in Israel, it sounds like. What was that like? What did you do? This, I assume, was after graduating from Maimonides High School. You did a gap year in Israel. What, what, what did you do? I did. Uh, I think our community in, in Brookline, we, I graduated from Maimonides. I think our community is very proud of the amount of alumni who go from Maimonides to do a gap year, whatever they decide to do in Israel, but a lot, most of us do yeshiva. So I went to do yeshiva at Leva Torah in Sermon Beit Shemesh Aleph. At the time, it was a total construction zone. There was nothing really built there. You know, I think it's an incredibly important part of most kids' journeys in their life. If they do do a gap year, it becomes really, you're really impressionable at, at that point. A lot of people that I've met from other communities that don't do it, they go straight to university and they don't gain that depth of experience that you might otherwise. And certainly, that, certainly we're very blessed, those of us who go, we're blessed to have parents that can afford to send us for sure. But given that they can, that we have that bracha, that we have that, that absolute complete wonderful blessing to do it the result the experience you get is quite quite amazing i changed quite a bit in um, in israel how would you say you changed and you referenced already that you became more dedicated to athletics which is a surprising byproduct of talmud study so i mean what changed for you was it just giving you a clarity of focus what exactly happened to you at that point i'd say that I've had two transformations, two huge transformations in my life, and both have arisen out of being in Israel, which is, I think, one of the things that has drawn, that, that drew me to make Aliyah was that both of these transformations came uniquely from being in Israel. The first was in 2006 when I spent the summer in the middle of the Second Lebanon War. I spent the summer in Israel. We spent most of the time in Yerushalayim because there were rockets falling. And I made a decision in 2006. It kind of turned me somehow for some reason into being a serious student. Back then I was not a serious student. I would have gone absolutely nowhere if I hadn't had this summer. In 2010, that 2009-10, that year, something clicked as well. It was, I think, the decision to really apply myself to try to get to MIT. I, I just didn't have the confidence before that year in Israel to even apply to MIT. I didn't think that I would get in, so I never took the time to apply. I didn't take the requisite tests and exams. And I think there was just something about dedicating, you know, I, I spent a lot of time studying every day, um, you know, studying Talmud. So 
perhaps it was that that really changed the complete application dedication of yourself for many, many, many hours a day into studying and learning. And I wanted something more out of myself. I didn't want to kind of just laze around and be a couch potato. So you became, it sounds like a more serious student, obviously, but also a more serious athlete at that point. Did you start working out regularly while in Israel and you get yourself ready for MIT? Yeah, I think many different people have different personality types and my personality type, some people out there might resonate might resonate with this, is that once I decide to do something, I kind of go to the extreme of doing it. <laughs> You're all in. So yeah, I'm completely all in. It drives, I think, some people a bit crazy. It's a bit at Sometimes I decided a few years ago that I wanted to do some bodybuilding, so I started to weigh every piece of food that I ate for over a year to the gram and put it in my phone before putting it in my mouth. It drove my mother crazy because she couldn't dress the chicken for Shabbos. And I, <laughs> I asked for a completely plain chicken grilled. And at one point, she kind of threw her hands up and said, okay, you come home and you do it. So, you know, I think it's a bit of a Meshuggah personality. Um, it requires a lot of chutzpah. But once I decided to make that change to, I think the decision at first was that I wanted to jump back into hockey. Because at the end of high school, I made the decision to quit uh, hockey. I thought that, you know, I was done with hockey full on and that it was simply time for the next phase of life. And then during that year in Israel, I thought, you know, I'm doing all this stuff. And I looked at myself and I thought, you know, well, I'm quite overweight and this is not what I wanted for myself. And I want to go and make the hockey team at MIT. And MIT is not a Division One NCAA school. At the time, it was a varsity program in D3, I believe. And then the funding was cut and it was cut to a club, to a club team, but it was still the same level of play. And so I thought it would be an admirable goal for me to still try to achieve that, to set that for myself to see if I can get back there. You know, so I, I was about 200 pounds at that point. I lost 35 to get to 165. And that was really the first goal. And, you know, every day during the afternoon rest time after lunch, I would basically go to my room, lock myself in my room and do some P90X cardio stuff. And I, <laughs> not much of a rest time. It, it, not much of a rest time, but it became, it became since then just complete obsession, just absolute um, single focused, one track mind. And that's really how it is with me. And it, it's sometimes a very good thing and sometimes a very bad thing. The challenge is always to find the right balance, but we always learn from our mistakes. So I've made a ton of mistakes in my life and throughout doing this, a ton of mistakes on the skeleton journey, a ton of mistakes on the Olympic journey overall. But every time, for some reason, it always seems that when you end the journey or when you get to the end point of a specific part of the journey, you finally crack the code. And if you could have gone back and known what you'd known at that point, you would have done it a little differently. But you take that knowledge going forward. Let's move forward a little bit because you were at MIT playing hockey, doing some mechanical engineering. And at some point, it sounds like you must have shifted sports and shifted focus. What did you do immediately after college? Where did you go? And, and how did that all lead toward this epic Olympic journey? Okay, so the Olympic journey starts as far back as October of 2013. Uh, I would say that the original decision has a roots in that decision not to pursue a hockey career and to say that Jews don't do that. So the alumni director at my school is a wonderful man named Mike Rosenberg. Uh, he's the alumni director at Maimonides School. He cares a lot about the school. He's terrific. I was just visiting him one day at Maimonides and 
he said, you know, I don't think we've ever had somebody who's reached that level that you've just reached in terms of doing what you're doing in, in hockey at school. You know, certainly we've had some terrific softball players and basketball players at YU, but outside of that program, uh, let's say like just in hockey in general as well, we haven't had somebody who's kind of reached that level. Uh, now, Maimonides has had some incredible athletes and terrific athletes, and they're incredibly accomplished. I think um, there's a girl named Algie who's at YU and setting all sorts of wonderful uh, records with, with her with her sport. She's in basketball. And I think, you know, there's Maimonides has had some terrific athletes, but what he, what he had said, what he was getting at, really, was that for all the hundreds of alumni that we had turned out, statistically, there were far fewer athletes than there would be from a different community. I think, and that's that's what I took from it. And I thought, you know, why is that? I had made a conscious effort. I had made a conscious decision not to pursue sports, even though I had the ability to do so. Uh, and certainly there might be something linked to it. And so I thought, you know, it's because I think Jews make a conscious decision that, that we excel in other areas of life. We're overrepresented in every profession with the exception of sports, it so seems. And so I thought, you know, I want to change that. I, I, I want to change that. I want to continue being an athlete. And if I'm going to continue being an athlete, then it has to be for something huge. It, it's got to be, you know, this is the all-in mentality. It's got to be for something absolutely disgustingly big. And I thought, well, how am I going to do that and change the perception of Jews? Because if it's going to be for something big, it has to have an impact. It can't just be for myself because it's quite selfish and it's not, there's no point. You know, I can go skydiving every weekend if I want. That's great. And it's fun. <laughs> um, I thought that the best way to do that was to represent Israel in the Olympic Games. And it just, you know, I had popped into my mind. It's like, well, represent Israel, represent Jews in the Olympic Games. And at that very moment that I was thinking that, I was sitting and watching the nightly news. And it was, must have been like 11.30 p.m. channel NBC nightly news in Boston. And October of 2013, the bobsled team trials in the United States came on television. I took a look at that sport and I said, wow, I can do that. I spend all day in the gym already. I'm going to do that and I'm going to be terrific at it. And I, of course, you know, this is before you know anything about a sport and you think, oh, that looks easy. You know, be like, <laughs> the people look at curling. They're like, they're like, oh, I can sweep a broom. But curling is insanely difficult. You know, I I taken a look at him. I was like, I'm great with hand-eye coordination. I catch rocks all day. I'm sure I'd be good at bobsled. So I hopped online. I Googled Israel bobsled team. I found a page from, I think it was like 2016. The website was way outdated. And um, I think the website had been designed in 2003. And I just I messaged everybody on that site. I said, hey, I want to do bobsled. I want to do bobsled for Israel. Here's who I am. And it sounded like a crazy email. I, I don't have the emails anymore because it was on my MIT server. But <laughs> it, I mean, it, was, it must have sounded absolutely fanatical. And I emailed the 10 people who were on that page. One got back to me and said, none of the other emails work anymore, but message this guy. And I messaged him and his name is David Graves. He's up in Winnipeg. He is the head of the Israel Bobsled uh, Federation. He was on the Bobsled team that went, you know, that disbanded in 2006. Yeah, which, by the way, is surprising that Israel even has a Bobsled team. Israel did have a Bobsled team, and that's and that's really what I wanted to do. Uh, now, what he told me, he said, he said we don't have Bobsled anymore, uh, but what we do have is a sport called skeleton. And there's a slider named Radzilevsky, great slider. He tried to qualify for Sochi, and things just didn't work out. And he's retiring. He lives in Yerushalayim now. He's retiring. And go to this, what we call a driver school. Go try the sport in Lake Placid during Sochi, during the Olympic Games, there's a driver school. At the same time, the United States, I had submitted an athletic resume online because I was unsure of whether Israel would ever get back to me. It took a while. And 
I got an invitation from them to attend this driver school and they take 10 out of about a thousand people during the Olympic year to do that. So it was pretty lucky. I think luck plays just so much part of it. Uh, lucky to be invited by them. David said attend, but attend as an Israeli. Just tell them that you're attending as an Israeli. We have a very close working relationship. So I went up, I asked my parents for the $600 it cost to do everything there. Uh, they promised to give me, they said, he agreed to give it under the condition that I would never bring it up again. I would never bring up doing the sport again. And I said, promise, all good. It's just a fantasy camp. I just want to go. And that's what jump-started the journey. Sounds like you, you owe them $600, maybe. But, uh, <laughs> but in the meanwhile, hey, just, just so our listeners have some context here, I mean, what is skeleton? <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a pretty creepy thing. I don't know. What, what is it exactly? Right. right. <laughs> so a lot, a lot of people ask this because bobsled is very well known, sure. especially the movie Cool Run. So skeleton is a one-man version of bobsled. If you were to cut the bobsled in half and remove all the protective walls and then lay on your belly and go head first, that is skeleton. Wow, so it's going and down a trap. It's going down the same track as Bob said goes down, the same track luge goes down. If you were to turn a luge backwards and flip the guy in the stomach, that would be the same sport. So skeleton is the headfirst version of luge and Bob said. It's basically like the crazy and guy doing luge. <laughs> it, for me, it was good because I didn't have to recruit a team. And David was very clear on that point. He said, skeleton costs $40,000 a year. Bob said costs potentially $80,000 a year. And you have to purchase $50,000 Bob said and find three other Jews to give up their life, their career, and their savings to take a long shot at trying to make the Olympic Games. You're far better off doing it in skeleton. I said, okay, I'll try skeleton. But the problem was when we got to the Olympic Training Center and did that driver's school, the report that I had been given and that Israel was given on me said that I was so atrocious at sprinting and running that I could never make the Olympic Games no matter what I did, no matter how long it took. And when I heard that, actually, when I heard that Israel had been given that report, two things happened. One is Israel ceased all communications for six months. <laughs> I think they thought Brad might be coming back. So they, they pretty much left me for dead. The second thing is I started training. I thought there's no better motivation than being told that you can't do something. So that day that I was told that was March 14th of 2014. That was my birthday, my 23rd birthday. I took out a piece of paper and I wrote down 2,884. And that was the amount of days until Beijing 22. I said, I will try for the next 2,884 days as hard as I can to make the games. And I can quit after 2,884 days. First of all, driving school is teaching you how to, to drive the, the, this bobsled or whatever the, the thing is called. Is that why it's called it's, driving school? It's called driving school. It's a bit misleading because you don't know how to drive a skeleton sled for at least the first 150 times that you go down. It's a very painful learning process. What driving school is, is a way of, <laughs> I actually think it's for the avoidance of litigation when people severely hurt themselves. <laughs> you get a little certificate at the end of the week. You get sent from halfway down the track, padded up like the Michelin man, like a huge linebacker. And they send you from halfway down the track so you won't flip. And you're padded up so you won't get absolutely smashed. And at the end of the week, after about 10 or so runs, 12 runs, they give you a certificate and says, this person has passed this driving school. He's now licensed to go and start learning skeleton. And that's basically what it is. You learn about what a sled is. You learn about what a track is. You learn about what the features of a track are. There are curves. The curves have different lengths. Each track is different. There's different speeds and G-forces. And so you learn the basics, but you don't know how to drive the sled for the first 150 times. For the first 150 times, 
you don't even know if you're going up or down in a corner because you can't feel the g-forces it just feels like a hammer has pressed into your back like it just came on and smashed you and you don't know to shut your senses off you're fighting at that point it's like somebody's strangling you so your whole body is trying to fight the pressures you don't feel it at about 150 times you start to feel the pressures so nobody knows how to steer until then and what do you think allowed you to be invited i mean you said there's a thousand people that apply 10 get to go. You said it's basically luck, but there had to be more to it than that. Was it that Israel gave you an endorsement? What got you this invitation? Right. Well, at the time, Israel wasn't talking to them. Uh, I, had, I had actually received word back from the United States before Israel had gotten word back to me. So I, I really think it might have been the novelty of having a hockey player from MIT um, who is probably coming in the midst of all these like um, people who generally apply to these kinds of sports who are kind of meatheads. Uh, you know, it's a derogatory term, but no, they're not, I wouldn't say meatheads, but they're people who seek out adrenaline type scenarios. And there are a few software developers or really smart people in this sport, or everybody in sport is smart, but there's a few people who are academically brilliant. And so one of them is Kyle Truss, who was a Sochi 2014 Olympian for the United States. He's a software developer. And I think they're looking for the skill set of somebody who has real athletic talent but who also can apply their brain to the sport or who has enough of their brain to lose. Is the driving school designed to generate the next Olympians or is it more just kind of like, hey, the sport is in the news right now. It sounds cool. Let's, let's get some people to come and try it out. Right. There's two kinds of driving schools. One which acts as a talent ID camp, which is the one that I, I attended. That's the one that takes 10 and that takes Americans. It's an American driving school for Americans. There's a second driving school, which would have been more appropriate for me to attend, but I wasn't aware of it at the time. It took place a week afterwards. And that's just a general driving school where people are invited as part of the governing body of our sports intent to try to get new people into the sport. People don't enter the sport until they try it because there's a couple of people who try the sport. Those who are lucky who try it and can't do it anymore. They they can't withstand the G-forces. The blood doesn't flow properly under the high pressures. And they just they can't do it. And so for the next four years of their life, they can't throw all their, their life away and sever all their connections. And they're lucky. But there are those who filter through the, the driver school that the IBSF offers, that's the governing body of the sport, and they, they make it through and then start to train for the national federations. But the U.S. one that I attended was a talent I And I guess coming out of this thing, it sounded like they didn't think you were so hot. What was the issue? You couldn't run fast enough? I mean, aren't you on a sled? What does running have to do with it? Pardon my ignorance. <laughs> no, not at all. It's, we start with a sprinting start, and it's a really complex issue to start with a sprinting start. So you start basically in a three-point stance, like a 100-meter uh, sprinter would. On and ice. You, on ice. So you wear spikes. There's about 240 needle spikes on the bottom of our, our shoe. It looks like an athletic track shoe, but it has 240 little spikes. And we run all out down the hill for the first 30 or 35 meters until your core strength just can't sustain a 17% grade. You know, it's you know, it's basically if you were to go outside and just run down a hill, eventually you start to flail your arms and run over, right? So you start with a sprinting start, and that's the entire acceleration that you have throughout the entirety of the track with the exception of gravity. So every tenth of a second deficit at the start for the first time in the eye is traditionally accepted to be three-tenths worth because of momentum loss, three-tenths worth of a deficit at the bottom of the track. And so if you have a starting velocity of 46 and a half kilometers an hour and somebody has 
45 and a half kilometers an hour is huge because by the first time you you'll be two or three kilometers an hour potentially off. So, you know, the, the way they had said, I, I had never run before. And believe it or not, for most people that are listening to this program, running is a really important and technical skill. And as a goalie, when I skated, my feet went out. They cut sideways almost. Right. That's how you generate the force to go forward. But when you're running, you want a completely linear motion. And I, all of my energy was lost because I was jumping basically from left to right instead of forward. And they just said, you know, this kid is so bad. He can't run for anything. It's 30 meter time. He tested me on the 30 meter time. I did two things. I, I strained my hamstrings when I, run, when I ran it because I had no idea how to do a warm up for sprinting. And then the second one was I posted perhaps, I'm sure, the worst 30 meter time in a U.S. talent ID camp in the history of talent ID camps. It was truly atrocious. So I guess you, you didn't like taking no for an answer and you kind of set this incredibly ambitious goal for yourself. What did you do from there? Did you leave school? Had you completed school or were you in the process of finishing MIT at that point? And where do you go to start training? Like, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't know where to start training for Skeleton if you asked me to. <laughs> I'm not sure where the, the nearest facility is to where I am. I mean, what do you do? Right. So it, what, what happened was I got, I got the answer of, you know, basically, heck no, you're never going to make it. And at the time, I was still training, if we can call it training for the bodybuilding competition. I was in the middle of cutting, we call it cutting. I was going from 180 pounds to 165 pounds. And just, you know, it was, I was fawn in sports mode. My graduation was a couple months from that time period. It was in June of 2014. So from that period on, I was still in training for the bodybuilding competition, but Israel disappeared. They fell off the map. They didn't, you know, basically want to talk to some, but no future in the sport, rightfully so. They shouldn't be wasting their time with me back then. But once they realized that Brad had fully, fully retired and that they needed to keep the Federation active, they needed a, a slider. They needed somebody who needed to slide that year. They contacted me in November of 2014. And I'll never forget it because I was lying on the hood of my car in California. I was hired by Oracle in California. Israel hadn't contacted me. I had sent them a couple of emails, just never heard back. And I just get a call in the middle of the night. I'm thinking I had just gone into a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym. I thought this is what I'm doing for the next six years. I'm going to go become a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, that's going to be my next adventure. And I get a call from, from Brad, my predecessor. And he says, AJ, where are you? I said, I'm in California. Where have you been? And he said, oh, well, I'm, I'm in your It's Good to talk to you. Um, there is a driver's school, another driver's school in Park City in, I think, I think it was like three days after that. He's like, it's in three days. Go. I said, well, I don't have equipment. I don't have shoes. I don't have a sled. I don't have a helmet. How do I just go? He said, everything works itself out. Basically like a shemmy Just go. I went down there. I rented a sled for an insane amount of money. It was basically, it's called the coffin sled because it's built 45 kilos. It's almost, it's almost a hundred pounds. It's just insanely inefficient piece of equipment that you that you really destroy yourself on. So I rented that, I rented shoes, the whole works. I'd completed another driver's school. And then at the driver's school, I'd heard that there was a race the following week. And I was like, well, couldn't hurt to do a race. At the time, the company that I was at in California, Oracle, I was just working remotely at the time. And there was no reason to tell them, you know, I'm just here for a few days. I'm working remotely, getting in all my work. But, you know, at that point, it would have been two weeks. I, I messaged them. I was like, hey, I'm just trying this thing. It's a short-term thing. It's no big deal. You know. Um, they were cool with it. They they were cool with it. They didn't really know what it was, and neither did I. So, it, <laughs> you know, I, I attended the race, and unfortunately, or fortunately for me, 
I didn't finish in last place because a person flipped and lost his sled. And I held on to my sled and didn't finish in last. So I've never finished in last place in a race. <laughs> so, so I didn't finish in last place, but I did come 18 seconds behind the winner. 18 seconds in our sport is the equivalent of starting, I would say, when one person crosses the finish line, you are still at the middle of the track and would run. Right? It is so atrocious. Can you give me, a, can you give me an had, analogy in another sport? Like, let's say, uh, I don't know, a 40 yard dash or, uh, or a sprint or something like that. Okay. I would say that the equivalent, well, a 100 meter sprint doesn't even occur more than 11 seconds in the Olympic Games. Right. So it's a full a two races of the 100 meter sprint in the Olympic Games. Or the equivalent, I guess, if somebody pitched the baseball, somebody pitched the baseball from 60 feet and you waited about five seconds before swinging, that's how bad it would be. Wow. So, um, so it was truly bad. But somebody had said, somebody was explaining to their friends, they were trying to show off to their friends how much they knew of the sport. They were just a U.S. athlete. And this was a really low-level race. He said, well, you know, most people quit within two years of the sport. It's really, really painful. People would self-selecting. And see that guy over there? He came at 18 seconds. You know, it was like a punchline. This guy came 18 seconds. I don't think anybody else had come worse than six or five seconds behind. He's like, this guy came 18 seconds. He'll be gone within two years. And I heard that, and I still had the 2,884 written. It was in my notebook. I crossed it out, or 1442. And I was like, I'm not just going to make it, but I'm going to make it in four years. So that was... That's, you you know, halved was, your goal. Was, yeah, I halved, I halved the goal. So what did you do from that point? I mean, becoming an Olympic athlete, at least from what I understand, is an incredibly consuming venture. People do this full time. They're not usually working for Oracle or Microsoft or, or anyone else. Uh, what, what did you do? And again, where did you start training? Did you hire a coach? Did you? I mean, you didn't have equipment. You didn't own things. I mean, that's like me saying, you know, I'm going to play on the dream team, you know, in uh, basketball in, in four years. You know, I, I need to like, you know, gross eight inches and become great at basketball. I'm like, what did you do? I mean, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because I, again, if we, if I had known what I know now. I would have gone about it a bit differently, but I went back to Oracle and I thought, you know, I still need to, to work and have a life. I don't have any money. You can't pay for a skeleton with no money. So I decided that every Wednesday or Thursday, I would fly from California to Calgary and I would train in Calgary Thursday, Friday, Mose Shabbos, Sunday, and slide three times more, take three times as many runs as was recommended for your health and then return to California on Monday morning. I could fly back Monday morning and walk into, walk into my job and do it without a coach. I did it without a coach because at the time, I just simply couldn't afford a coach. And I didn't know who to ask. So you're track time? So the track time, I had, there was a provincial team that was training always in, in Canada, and they were capped at three runs over the course of an hour and a half. Each person in that group could only take three runs. But for me, if I took three runs and then, you know, if I took a $700 round trip ticket from California, which is always purchased on short term notice, if I only took three runs and that's nine runs, you know, it's nine runs um, for the weekend or whatever it was, um, then each run, according to my calculations, which, which would be around $100 because each run is $30 plus the cost of round trip ticket. I thought if I can triple that and triple up the amount that I'm doing, then each run can actually be about 45 bucks or you know 50 bucks let's say and uh i took a ton of runs um i also wanted to get to that 150 run mark 
because I was doing an abbreviated season for all intents and purposes. I had 25% of the time to train that everybody else did. And so if I was going to do that, I needed at least three times as much run volume. So it was painful. I couldn't, there were days I couldn't walk. I broke tons of ribs. It's but self-coached throughout every, every day after, after the gliding, I'd watch about six to eight hours of video to create what's called neural pathways and, in the brain, there are like highways of information that could help transmit what you want to accomplish. If you want to swing a baseball bat, then watching people swinging baseball bats a lot will actually, or visualizing yourself doing so, will create a stronger neural pathway. So without a coach, I didn't have a coach. I just did it with six to eight hours of YouTube video a day and taught myself. And you were doing work remotely or you would just not work Thursday and Friday? No, I was doing work remotely. If you don't hand in your, your work, you're going to be fired. I was a product manager at the time. And so there was quite a bit of work to do, including evening calls every night. So I'd be up till two or three in the morning, most often. Um, and you know, it was a very time consuming time in my life. It was straight up work for if it was whether it was work or training, I guess it was working about 18 hours a day or more. Unbelievable. It must be your, your bosses must have known at this point what you were doing if you're leaving every single week to go to Calgary. No, no, because I was just working remotely. And so, um, you know, I, I didn't really break it to them as a serious thing until I guess I requested a leave of absence for my second season. And, you know, I kind of had, um, I kind of had told them, you know, this season I'm going to go on the road. You know, there's this thing I've been doing and it wasn't, it didn't start out as being a serious four year journey. It started as being a much longer term thing. We thought that the previous person might be coming back. You know, it was it required a lot of explaining, so that didn't come off as though, you know, I had never intended to go to Oracle just to work to afford Skeleton. Skeleton really had come along as a serious adventure after I'd started there. And it only turned into this four-year thing after a ton of sacrifice during that year. So it required a lot of, of explaining, and they gave me the six months or five months off of the season so that I could go touring around and competing in Europe and in the United States under the agreement that I come back after, you know, to, to work in the summertime, but at the world championships in 2016, one of the Japanese coaches uh, is a very famous skeleton athlete. He had come up to me. He said, you know, you really have something here. You've really accomplished something quite terrific so far, but you can't do it half, half. You know, if you're going back to California and you're training there with no coach again, like you can't do it half, half, you're going to fail. So at that point I requested permission to, basically live in Israel, train at the Wingate Institute and retain my job at Oracle, still doing their remote work. They wanted me, however, at headquarters in California. And that's when we split. Wow. So obviously as you were training, like in Calgary, and I, you must've gotten close with the Jewish community in Calgary, if you're there every single weekend. I did. I, I think it's an incredible point that you make in terms of the Jewish community, uh, because so much of what I've been able to accomplish is only through the generosity of the communities that I've met, especially the Calgarian Jewish community. I stayed in the house of, uh, of a family out there called the Cates family, and they were incredibly welcoming, extremely generous with their time, extremely generous with their home. They let me stay in their basement and in a, in a bedroom. It was really far more, if I could not have afforded going to Calgary and staying in, in, staying in, a, hotel, in, a, in a hotel every week. So the Calgarian Jewish community was very welcoming and quite wonderful. It's such a bracha to be Jewish because Jewish communities care for, for, you know, they care about everybody, but they're really welcoming of, of other Jews who are nomadic and 
you know, whenever I showed up to a community and needed a place to stay for Shabbos, there were generally people who were willing to help out. So now as you're training, you must have been seeing dramatic improvements, you know, that 18 seconds off must have been getting, you know, shaved and shaved and shaved until you were actually posting respectable times, I'm guessing. Otherwise, you couldn't have continued. But at what point did you know that, hey, I've got a real shot of of being legit, you know, of, of being an Olympian or, you know, a national champion or whatever it is? And were there certain benchmarks you had to hit to make the Olympics? Or was it like, you're the only dude in Israel doing this, so you're automatically in anyway? No, no, no. So, um... We'll start by addressing the um, the qualification because a lot of people are you know they wonder about this whether they've seen a skier in the most recent Olympics that that looks as though she she may not have been of Olympic caliber. The way that you make the Olympics in skeleton, there's 30 spots for men, and there's about 140 people on the ranking table or more. Not, so a, not every country gets a representative. Far from it. Okay. Uh, those people who are in the ranking table are the ones good enough who have even made the respective national teams to compete in international competition. So an unlimited amount of athletes cannot show up to a race. They have to be licensed by the country. So there's about 32 or 33 countries who are vying for placements at the Olympic Games this year. 29 spots are reserved for performance, and one was reserved this year for the African representative who did not achieve basically a performance metric. It's called continental representation. There was no other African athlete. And so as the highest ranking African athlete, he was the recipient of the quota spot. So 29 are then left. That's broken down in a quota system where a few countries get three, depending on the highest ranked athletes, a few countries get two, and then 10 countries get one. So Israel or myself had to position myself bearing in mind a quota spot. We had to say, well, we're going to attend these races to hold back these other nations from getting into that quota spot. We need to beat them in points, but also hold them back in points. So it's all well and good to go to one race and get a certain amount of points. But if you're not in the same race as a specific other nation who you're trying to compete against, you can't guarantee that you end up in front of them in quota spot. So by virtue of being the best Israeli, it was still incredibly difficult to make the games because we had to position ourselves as the recipient of the 10th single nation sled. We ended up in front of 14 other nations. And so, I mean, making the games in skeleton is insanely difficult, especially given that we had no coaching. And throughout the entire season, I was considered Israel number one because I was a better slider and I won the selection races in Lake Placid and Whistler. So we had a team trials. But the other athletes on the team, which there are four total athletes on the team this year, they were still competing on the lower level circuit. And so by virtue of the lower level circuits giving out a bit of easier points this year, I was actually behind in world ranking points until the very last two races of the season, which were the last days of qualification. And, and so it's, it's one of those things where it's an individual sport, but you have to do what's best for the country because we all agreed when we started this that the goal was to get Israel to the games. The goal has always been to get Israel to the games. It serves no purpose to be national champion, but not make the Olympic games. It's far more satisfying to end up as Israel number two but watch Israel be represented at the Olympic Games. And so I made some conscious decisions in consultation with my mentors in the skeleton, in the skeleton world, had a few people advising me, to attend certain higher-level competitions and cover the bases by having Israel's number two slider attend the lower level. That way we both got points at those respective competitions. 
up until the last race of the season, actually, I was behind in world ranking points. So there was no way of knowing of whether I would be the representative. Always I knew that I was Israel's likelier candidate, but until that last race of the season, it was, I mean, it was very, it was a really stressful, it was a really stressful season. But of course you made it. And as we, as we start to round the corner here on our own, uh, on our podcast track, tell us what that uh, experience was like going to the Olympic Games this winter. You know, I think for each athlete it's different because there's something which is very unique towards representing, to representing Israel. I think for me personally, the journey would have only been worth it if it was for Israel. I'm not sure that so many other athletes can say that in their respective sports where, where the journey would only be worth it for that specific country. There are many people who are incredibly patriotic and they love their, and they love their countries. You know, I think uh, Steve Holcomb, who is a U.S. bobsetter, absolutely loved the United States of America. I've met quite a few athletes over the time who are training to go to the games. That's what they want to accomplish. For me, it was to get Israel to the games. And so attending the games or walking into the opening ceremonies was a very moving experience because it was a culmination of everything that I had wanted to achieve in terms of getting Israel there. And I think, Why was that um, important to you? Because the journey was about inspiring further Jewish participation in sport and dispelling the myth that Jews could not do sport. As well, it was about showing that, you know, if somebody says that we can't do something or Jews can't do something, if they, they can't participate at elite level sports, we sure as hell can. You know, and, and we can do so with fewer resources. You know, that not having coaches is insanely big disadvantage. So I said, you know, for attending the games, you barely know that an Olympic Games is going on around you. It's like being at the summer camp for athletes, really, because you focus so heavily on your own competition. You don't go to see the other events until your competition is done. My competition was done, and then Israel kicked me out of the village because they don't want to really, you know, the, the security concerns financially having, you know, covering athletes in the village. They just want you out once your competition is over. So for me, it was like being at summer camp, meeting a bunch of great athletes, but focusing solely on my competition. Wow. So you, you get there. I mean, but it must be like a dizzying experience just being in the village and there's just thousands of people everywhere, right? I mean, and these are all the best athletes in their respective sports in the world, every different country. I mean, just what was it like to just be in that atmosphere, albeit for the short amount of time you were supported to be there? I think there's two phases of getting to the Olympics. There's two phases of arriving at the Olympic Games. One is pre-opening ceremonies and one is post-opening ceremonies. Pre-opening ceremonies, the glitz and the glam, they're terrific. You go and pick up your free Samsung phone. You, you're taken around by some assistant from the Olympic Village. You're eating in a massive hall with tons of good fruit. And you're meeting just tons of other athletes. And it's, it's great. As an athlete, there's no bigger training high than training next to somebody who is going to win seven gold medals or something you know, in their lifetime. It's absolutely terrific. But once the opening ceremonies are over, you know, the, the peak of it is the opening ceremony. If you walk into the stadium, you know that... Uh, a billion people in the world are watching or more. Um, Israel is being represented, and that's the culmination of everything that you've wanted to do. But the moment those ceremonies are over, everything becomes about having a respectable performance at the Olympic Games. Because the goal is not to get to the Olympics. The goal is to represent Israel in the Olympics. And part of that is putting in a performance which is worthy of the honor which Israel has given me. And Israel has given me an honor. It's not anything that I've done for Israel. Israel has done it completely for me. Because without the flag, without the country, we're nothing. We're out. We're a bunch of kids out taking a joyride, a painful joyride, but nevertheless, it's a joyride. But every four years, people seem to care, right? And people seem to care because of our countries. And so, you know, for me, making the games is not the issue. It was about February 15th and 16th 
being the best I could on those days. So focus mode was completely on. You change your entire perspective of the games. It no longer becomes about, let's go catch some figure skating competition. Let's go catch some big air competition. It's, I got to go to the track. I got to take care of my sled. I got to review video. I'd say for the week plus that I was solely focused on competition, I barely knew anything else that was going on. And then, of course, you did arrive on the day of competition, uh, mid-February 2018. How did that go? What was that experience like? How did you perform? Mm, mix of emotions, uh, because the the prior two days, I'd been training absolutely terribly. For the first two days, I'd been training really well, far exceeding expectations, like incredibly well, top 20s almost. And that our expectation going in was that we'd finish 28, 29. Out of 30? Out of 30. And so we were, you know, but, but being 28, 29, it meant that you were competing amongst the people who had earned their spot for performance, you know? Uh, and so you were going to be 28th or 29th best in the world. And for, for what we had accomplished being the only ones at the games with no coaching, that was huge because you have to work out for the 16 corners of the track. It's brand new. We've never been there. You have to work out the physics of each curve by yourself. And doing that under 5G forces, you have to replay a video of everything that happened in the 60 seconds preceding it. And you have to write all that down and make adjustments. It's really hard. So the Latvians, the Germans, the other teams, the United States, they all have 10, 15 coaches along the track videoing. We had one guy, and he wasn't a coach. So, you know, heading into the first couple days of of training, it was insane. I mean, our NOC came out. The head of the Olympic Committee came out. He was super impressed. And then, unfortunately, a piece of equipment got, got damaged. And I missed, um, it threw off my entire balance point. We balance on our sled very much like a rocking chair. And if you're off balance, everything goes wrong. And so I went from training 20th to training 30th. Like I was behind the African guy. And so there's, you know, there's an image which I have, which is a screen grab of, for some reason, the Olympics had broadcast on their broadcasting system to training. And I'm just, my head is in my hands coming up to run out because I am so, I have no idea what's going on. And the, the competition is the next day. That's all I could think about when I came over that hill and saw the time was, I'm going to embarrass Israel, and they're never going to let another Israeli, like the Olympic Committee will never let another Israeli do skeleton. Complete embarrassment. It's the worst. Um, that evening, I stared at the wall for like an hour or so. I was like, it's it's going to be shameful. Tomorrow's going to be terrible. Like, I have no idea what's going on in the sled. The, the sled had to be recalibrated a number of times. And then at the end of the hour, my older brother calls me. My older brother is an, ex- is an accomplished comedian. You know, he's won uh, some big awards in his life in terms of his comedy. He gave me some advice, and he didn't even know what was going on. But he gave me some advice. He's like, if this is the last thing that you're going to do a skeleton, which it might be, you know, you need to remember everything that you're doing. You know, remember the smell, remember the feeling, remember the imagery, everything. Because you've already gotten the achievement of getting Israel to the games. There's not so much more that you can accomplish. You're not going to win a gold medal. We know that. And it doesn't really matter the placement. You have to just put in a performance that Israel's proud of. Right. So it really changed my perspective. I completely, you know, I hung up from the call. I started to work on my sled, polishing my runners, which is very important. It's a very long process that we do the night before the race to make sure that there are no imperfections in the metal, so that nothing catches on the ice and slows us down. And, you know, I'd stayed up till one o'clock that evening. I should have gotten a bit more sleep, but it was really fully concentrated in trying to do the best that I would do the next day. And I'd gone from training originally in the 20s to the 30s, but the time difference was two seconds. So I'd gone from 52 high to 54 about, so 52 seconds to about 54 plus seconds. 
the next day when I walked to the line, I was like, we're going to do this and absolutely smash it. And so came up the run out and I was incredibly pumped because I looked at the scoreboard and it was like 52 five. And through all the stuff that we'd gone through the last two days where we had training gone back into 54 seconds, we'd finally come down in back into the 52 mids. And it was a huge accomplishment because the year before in the World Cup, it would have been a really good result. The Olympic Games, it's a good result to get to 28. Um, and so, you know, that, that for me was really huge. So I was pumping my fist. I was really, really proud about it. You know, that, that was, it was an interesting feeling. It's a huge feeling to go from the depths of despair as an athlete to doing something that you're incredibly proud of. And, you know, the pushes, the sprinting starts, you know, I, this year was insanely um, training focused. You know, in, in December, December, a lot of people take off, right? So a lot of people take off in December to go visit their family. I have a philosophy that if you're not training on, on other people's hug, then there, you know, and so Christmas, that, you know, December 25th, New Year's, I was always certain that I was the only one at the track. I was always taking runs in those days. And throughout the entire month of December, and from when I found it, I was in the games until the games itself, I had a full training regimen. So the, the sprinting aspect was really strong. Um, it was really strong for me. And it posted far better times, two-tenths of a second better on the sprint than the year before. It was, it was a huge accomplishment. Israel was really, really proud of it. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of hype within the Israeli program as to what 2022 might bring. But uh, I think the journey for me may be finished. But, you know, that feeling, the feeling of, of competing and, and having performed that, I felt really good because that, that day there's either passengers in skeleton, you're either laying on the sled in, in a total passenger, or there's competitors. And I think a lot, of the, a lot of the athletes who were at the games, who had been there for multiple games, you know, they, they took a look and they said, you know, that's it's really quite something that, that you've accomplished. You're only two seconds behind a gold medalist. You know, so in my first uh, my first race four years ago, I was eight seconds behind the winner, who himself was about a second and a half behind the gold medalist in this race. So um, it's a huge accomplishment for Israel. That's amazing. What is the world record in uh, skeleton? So each track is different. They have different features, different lengths, different curves. So each track is a different track record. The track record at that track is about fifty seconds point zero five. So fifty seconds and five hundredths. Um, I was fifty two point three. So in my run, he set the track record at about 50.3. I was 52.35. Wow. So, so barely was, two seconds um, behind the world record on that track. Yeah, it was, it, it was huge. For what Israel accomplished being an actual competitor at the games rather than, rather than a passenger. And it was, uh, I, I was psyched about it. I was really psyched about it. What does the future hold for you? I mean, you referenced that you may, this may be the end of the line, but yet that there's a lot of hype in Israel. Do you have a, a chance at 2022? Are you interested in 2022? What is the future for you? And what are you doing now? Are you living in Israel? Are you back in America? What's uh, that like? Well, there's conflicting. There's one portion of my life is the real portion. And when I say real portion, it's starting a family, getting a job, being a responsible human being. And then there's the other, which is the athlete portion, which is the teenager. And the teenager wants to go back. The teenager wants to recapture the fleeting moments of, the, of those Olympic Games where, where you knew that you represented Israel on an incredibly large stage and did it well. However, if I take a look at it objectively, if I take a look at the skeleton objectively, I have a lot to accomplish outside of the sport in terms of my original goal of getting more Jews involved in sports. And I've had for a number of years now my eye on trying to start a foundation to get more Jews involved in high-level pursuits. So 
getting them coaching and funding necessary. You know, if, if, if a kid goes to their parents and says, you know, I just saw fencing or just saw bobsled or just saw whatever they saw on TV and I really want to do that. I think a lot of parents would have a lot of difficulty in finding the correct route to go about that, Jewish parents especially, because there's not those resources. And once they find them, it's, it's a very expensive and difficult endeavor. And so I have a feeling that starting a foundation to funnel those resources to those kids would be a huge, I'd say, contribution to the Jewish and Israeli sporting communities. And so I have that to contribute outside of the sport. And, you know, that's, that's really my passion at this point, getting more people involved, as well as talking to people about my journeys. I love talking to school kids. I love talking to communities about what the journey has meant to me and all the lessons that I've learned. Because there's really a lot of lessons to be learned as a Jew and as, an, as just a person. And so 2022 is, is highly unlikely, I think, just at this point. I, I have, I'm 27 years old. I just turned 27. I have to start a family. I'm, I have no money in the bank, of course. So I hate to say it, the Jewish thing. I have to do the Jewish thing. I have to, have to be a responsible uh, individual. So never say never, of course. But that was the immediate thought coming out of the games was I've accomplished uh, or Israel has accomplished something. I'll never say I accomplished something because it was really Israel's journey. So Israel has accomplished something very major. And we can continue that momentum going forward by getting somebody who actually sprints quite fast. I can shepherd them to a games or two. Uh, I have it all laid out for them. I know all the lessons and all the pitfalls. And so that is really where my head's at right now. But it's only been a month. <laughs> it's been a month <laughs> since the game. Yeah. So, um, you know, you can man plans and Hashem laughs. Are you living in Israel now? Or did, I mean, I assume you had to make Aliyah to become an Israeli Olympian, I would imagine. Right. So very proudly made Aliyah May 3rd of 2016. I'm definitely never going to forget that day. Am I living in Israel? I will be living wherever my girlfriend ends up going to the city, wherever my girlfriend ends up going to medical school. So if she goes to medical school in the United States, I will end up in the United States. If she goes to medical school at Sackler in Israel, which is a great choice, then I'll be extremely happy to go. Uh, and live in Israel. I consider Israel my home, of course. Uh, I am Israeli. I'm very proud to be Israeli. Israel is definitely where I would consider my home base. I consider it the home base for all Jewish people. So as yet undetermined, it will be determined based on where she ends up. And just finally, in closing, AJ, you mentioned that you know you love speaking to communities and, and we're, th- we're thrilled to speak with you today. Because you enjoy sharing lessons from your journey, from your experience, what are some of the real signature messages that are important for you to share with people that, you know, because most kids are not going to become skeleton, you know, athletes. And really most people are not going to become elite athletes in any sport, just the reality of, you know, ability or interest or whatever it might be. So what are the transportable lessons and messages that you try to communicate when you speak with, with young people around the world? Okay, so I have three or four that I always tell kids, uh, and I shouldn't be giving away the story, I guess, but uh, about, <laughs> I guess about but if, if anybody is listening and they have kids, and, or, or if you're a kid yourself and you're listening, or you're just trying to start your own journey, then I think these lessons are really, really pertinent, um, and they're some of the biggest that I've learned in that. First is adversity makes you better, and challenges make you better. There were so many times throughout this journey where I was actually struggling with Israel's number two athlete and the uncertainty of whether I would be the one who's representing Israel. And, you know, I would wake up so many times and say, you know, if my, if my journey was only easy, you know, if only he didn't exist, or if only this other athlete didn't beat me by two one hundredths of a second, or 
one one hundredth of a second. We actually lost significant points this year, potentially even at, at it turned out the shot at, at, at the Olympic Games by one one hundredth of a second or five one hundredths of a second in another race. Right, an athlete jumped us by twenty points by finishing five one hundredths of a second higher in a World Cup race, and he was the Norwegian who originally rounded out the end of the list. And so, you know, I'd wake up and I'd say, if only that guy didn't exist, my, my journey would be so much easier and I'd, I'd be a cakewalk. You know, and I think it's the struggle to overcome those challenges that make you so much better. I wouldn't have spent six to eight hours a day on video. I wouldn't have trained, you know, without missing a beat for 365 days a year, you know, it's, except for Shabbos when, you know, everything. But adversity, challenges make you better. Uh, but it's only if you let it. The second is that failure makes you better. You know, if you let failure make you better, then it will make you better. If you succumb to failure, then it will drag you down. So there was only two ways that I can go that night before the Olympic Games. I could either walk in there expecting a great performance or walk in there and totally lie down and die. And it would have been really easy to lie down and die because I'd already made the game. It's not going to kick me out. But the conscious decision to go and recompose myself was really important. That lesson really carried us through. The final one is that you're always an ambassador of yourself and your people. So every time I put the sled in the grooves, when I was competing, I said a, a mantra, which is for myself and for my country and for my people. And that is because you're an ambassador of yourself. You, you earn people's respect and you earn their trust. But secondly, whenever you go out as a Jewish individual, you're representing the Jewish people and you're representing everybody who you're going to be identified as. And that, you know, as a Jew, you're identified as a Jew. Amazing. And what a beautiful way to close. Um, certainly, I think you've epitomized what this podcast is all about, I hope, which is uh, presenting people who are making a Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name, a sanctification of, uh, of Jewish values in the broader world. And certainly you've done that in an exceptionally unique way, in a way that I don't know that I've, I've met anyone else doing it before, but the message and the, the theme, the same. And uh, thank you so much for bringing your very unique personality and talents to bear in this particular arena and in a way that so many can learn from and, and take inspiration from. A.J. Edelman, Winter Olympian, Israeli, proud Jew. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.